Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Here we go, the start of another week on Political Rewind. It's Monday, March 15th. Beware the Ides of March, although I don't really know what we have to be afraid of today, but maybe the panel will have some thoughts on just that. Um, This is the beginning of a really significant week for us at Political Rewind. You know, uh, during last week, we talked often on on the show about the fact there were all the different anniversaries, the the day a year ago, your school shut down, or school system uh, shut down, the day the NBA uh, shut down, and, and all of these other dates that took place last week. Uh, tomorrow, March 16th, is the one-year anniversary that we began doing Political Rewind on remote. I've been doing it for, from um, uh, office in my house for a year. The panelists all continue to join us. Uh, by telephone or uh, by some other devices that we use now to bring people into the show. And uh, we're going to mark the day tomorrow by doing a show on where we stand with COVID-19 with uh, some of the uh, top experts in the field as part of our conversation. And I hope you'll join us for that. You know, I, one last point about that. Um, quite a while ago, I was keeping track of the number of weeks. I'd mentioned one, uh, once a week, I'd say, well, now in week 27 of doing the show on remote order. And, and my boss, Taya Ryan, the CEO of GPB, said to me one day, you, you don't really need to say that anymore. We all get the fact that that's become life as it is. And she's right. But tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit about what it's been like to do the show on remote for so long. Okay. Um, we know that today is the day that the... Uh, uh, pool of people who are going to be eligible to be vaccinated is expanding dramatically. We also know that Georgia has had the slowest rate of putting shots in arms of any state in the country. Uh, The governor has his explanation for why that isn't as bad as the basic uh, data sounds like it is. We can talk about that. Uh, But Georgia today does make a big leap forward. People 55 years and older plus People with uh, medical conditions, and there's a broad range of medical conditions that will essentially open the door for some two-thirds of adult Georgians to be vaccinated. Um, So that's an important move forward. At at the same time, the question becomes, is the infrastructure in place to allow people to make appointments, and will the doses be available? And we're going to have to watch how that unfolds in the days ahead. If you want to find out more about how you can get a vaccine in your county, there are so many different websites you can go to, um, and we want to make it simpler for you. So um, Grant Blankenship of GPB Radio has an article up right now on our website. We'll tweet it out in a minute. It gives you information from the Georgia Department of Public Health, from GEMA, from FEMA, which is opening vaccination sites run by the feds and more, and uh, you'll be able to go to that site and, and have a laundry list of places you can look for the vaccine. So 
We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the election bills. We'll talk about some other important legislation going on downtown. And now that daylight savings time is here, should it be permanent? Some people in the General Assembly think so, and so do some people in Congress. We'll talk about that. Jim Galloway is with me, as he is on Mondays, one of the best political analysts in the business. Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I had a great weekend. On Sunday, we had a my uh, best friend from high school and his wife over into our living room. We were all vaccinated. We took off our masks. We hugged each other, and uh, we had a grand time. Didn't turn on the TV. <laughs> didn't turn on the radio. We just sat and talked for, 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 for four you. or five hours. Uh, the life of the fully vaccinated. Congratulations uh, for, for that. Dr. Andra Gillespie is with us today as well. You all know her well. She's a political science professor at Emory University and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Um, hey, Andra, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty good. So as long as we're talking vaccines and whether people can, are getting them or not, uh, we know that a lot of uh, people who are teaching on the campus, on, college, on the college level, have been going to like Alabama, Tennessee, because so far the governor has not expanded teachers um, uh, in, in the list of people who can get uh, vaccinated, although if they're 55 or older or have medical conditions, now they can't. Are you seeing that happen around you at Emory? I do know people who have gone to Alabama to get their vaccines. Um, and so I think given the low rate of vaccination so far, it just doesn't make sense uh, for the state to not just open this up to higher education professionals, broadly speaking. Um, so I'm still too young under the age category, but I guess if I, you know, could legitimately claim I need to lose a couple pounds, that would be my end into getting it today. I don't know if I want to take that route. I'd rather just be allowed to get it as a college professor. Yeah, I got it. Well, we hope you're able to uh, fairly soon. Uh, we're also joined by two members of the State House today uh, who we like having on this show. Uh, Chuck F. Stration, the Republican from Gwinnett County, is with us. How are you, Chuck? You're still way too young to get vaccinated, too. I'm uh, so glad to be with you, Bill, today. Uh, looking forward to day 32 at the state capitol today. We're in the final stretch of the uh, 2021 legislative session, and I'm looking forward to discussing uh, this issue and, and many others with you here today. Okay, well, thanks for being here. Um, and uh, very happy to be joined by Democratic representative from Atlanta, Scott Hokum. Scott, I just said to Chuck that both of you are too young to meet the governor's requirements, but I think legislators were offered an opportunity to get vaccinated because of the close proximity, uh, close quarters you've been working in. Am I, am I right about that? Uh, if you are, then I missed that memo. Uh, I'm not aware of oh, that being okay. the case. I think we're being treated as, as all other citizens are. Okay, I got that wrong then. I apologize for that. Um, all right, Jim, let's start with this question about what's been happening with the vaccine in Georgia. Um, the AJC has run several articles in the last few days talking about the fact that the rollout in Georgia has been slow. And that, in fact, when you uh, look at uh, shots in arms per 100,000 people, we're at the very bottom of the list. Now, you can manipulate numbers any way you want to. The governor's response is, look at how many um, seniors, how many people age 65 and over we've vaccinated. We're well over 60-some percent. They're the most vulnerable 
uh, uh, Georgians. So I, I, what the real test is going to come now when they expand the pool and we watch to see if people can get appointments and actually get shots. Yeah, yeah. Two seem two things seem to be missing here. Is number one, uh, there hasn't been any public campaign out of the state government, uh, encourage people encouraging people to go to to get shots, and 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 the the uh, the the appointment process uh, is is rather scattershot. Uh, uh, in the beginning, uh, uh, local health health, uh, health departments were advised to set up their own, which led to a lot of confusion it still it still does but I, I think the larger issue is that we've got a we've got a uh, we've got a really interesting difference developing in in governmental philosophy uh, of course the Biden and Biden administration uh, the has set the federal machinery in motion I think that Mercedes-Benz Stadium uh, site opens this week but it's been very very aggressive. And you have uh, Governor Brian Kemp has always been a man of of limited government, a fellow who doesn't believe in governmental activism, and I think we're 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 seeing the result of that at, at, at this point. Uh, he's uh, there was a point last week where he was urging uh, uh, local pharmacies and 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 health departments to think outside the box. You know, and and find uh, find other 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 solutions for getting shots into people's arms, and it it just struck me that uh, we don't see we don't see the state government doing a whole lot of that itself. Um, Andra, weigh in on this. So, I mean, I think that Jim raises an interesting point. When people talk about limited government, it's usually about the federal government, but the state is the one that's supposed to kick in, especially on an issue like this. But if the state isn't kicking in um, and the federal government is following the state's lead, then that means that there are going to be consequences for that. Um, you know, I'm heartened to hear, you know, about Mercedes-Benz Arena opening, but having, or having dealt with this with parents in other states, where I would check Georgia occasionally just to see what was there, but I was also, you know, looking and trying to get, uh, you know, see what appointments would be available, particularly for my mom in Virginia. She ended up at what I assume is, you know, a FEMA National Guard mom site at a sporting venue, at a, at a racetrack, um, in order to get that last week. And so the idea that Georgia's not opening up until this week is something that is concerning. Um because it was hard to get that appointment. I mean, it took a long time for me to be able to get that interview. And so I can only imagine what people who are age eligible have been going through trying to get that, if only because, I, you know, I had been checking and it's difficult. And the idea that there are people who are camping out sort of, you know, at drugstores and at grocery, you know, store pharmacies in order to be sure that, like, you know, that they might get the last shot, you know, in a vial because nobody else is there to take it. Right. We shouldn't have to be doing this this particular way. And I even talked with my local pharmacist about, you know, what they were going to get. Um, and especially before Johnson and Johnson was approved, they were like, we don't have the capacity. Like, we don't have the freezers to do that. So to tell people to think outside the box doesn't mean anything when you know some of the logistical constraints. And so this is a scale issue. This is where government is actually really helpful. Scott and Chuck, I want to bring you into the conversation. Um, and Scott, I'll, I'll ask you about this first. Um, the Augusta University is uh, now studying the uh, uh, disparity between the way African Americans and the rest of the population in the state have dealt with COVID-19. And um, 
they uh, are now reporting that the toll uh, it remains greatest in rural counties with the highest black populations, less medical infrastructure, and higher rates of poverty, and less and lack of health insurance. Um, now we're, we're not terribly surprised by uh, that, but they've gone on to say that when you look at the death rate per hundred thousand people, the death rate for black adults aged 30 to 39 is 4.29 times higher than whites. It's four times higher among blacks aged 40 to 49 and 3.1 times higher among those 60 to 69. And, and the question becomes there too, whether the vaccine is getting to those rural communities where it is needed so desperately, Scott. You raise an excellent point, Bill, and I think that issue of disparities in health is, um, it exists not only in the context of this pandemic, but it exists across the board. And it's something that we really need to continue to focus on post-pandemic. So I'd like to offer that just as, as an introductory remark. Um, with respect to the vaccination, uh, this needs to be the state's top priority. And I agree with some of the comments that have been said. I think the communication in terms of the importance and the accessibility of the vaccination can be improved. And also one thing that I took note of is how um, there are uh, some areas in the rural parts of the state where it seems that the, the supply is exceeding the demand. And you have the opposite here in the metro area. And that raises the question, is that because of some unwillingness to take the vaccine? Is that because of lack of knowledge or awareness? Is that because of difficulties of making appointments? We really need to get to the bottom of it. And, and that said, I'm hopeful that we're going to see a big surge over the next few weeks. This is, to be fair, a very challenging operational problem. It's a massive scale in a very short period of time, but it really needs to be an all-hands-on-deck effort to be successful. Well, since January, the, the focus has been on vaccinating as many Georgians as possible in the top risk groups. And the state uh, has been very successful in this, uh, despite the many challenges that we have with such a large state geographically and with the uh, different needs in rural Georgia versus the metro Atlanta area. But what we know is that for those over 65, they've been vaccinated at a higher rate in Georgia than the national average. And there's, uh, there, had there been greater accessibility to a wider population earlier, there, an argument may have been made that uh, high risk groups were being unfairly excluded. And so, uh, it can be diff I think it's very difficult to second guess decisions that were made on such a very uh, difficult issue like this. Every state is dealing with this differently right now, depending upon the unique challenges within that state and under these unusually difficult circumstances. And so I think it's a good thing that eligibility is be ex being expanded now because ultimately we need as many shots in arms as possible. Um, I, I think that it's a fair point that, that uh, the, the emphasis has been on the more vulnerable, older uh, residents of Georgia. Uh, I suppose, Jim, you also have to add to that, though, that, that the large percentage of people vaccinated, I wonder how many uh, are excluded, even though they're in that, that vulnerable age group, uh, because they don't, aren't as proficient or don't have access to getting online, aren't quite clear on how to do that. Um, I, 
the technology has had a big role to play in who's gotten vaccinated and who hasn't, uh, Jim. Right, right. I mean, I mean, uh, most of these appointments are being made over the internet rather than by phone. And of course, we know that that, that rural Georgia has has a has a very very serious deficiency of internet access. The other, th- you know, look the other the other thing I'd I'd, I'd point to is 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 uh, uh, political training here. Uh, you have a significant portion of the Republican Party that has been encouraged that, that is is has uh, been encouraged to kind of jump into vaccine skepticism. Uh, uh, we we've got some polling out over the weekend that shows uh, that shows white Republican men are are pretty much the most vaccine skeptical uh, segment of the society. And you have to wonder how much of that is playing into uh, in, into the, uh, the the low vaccination rate. Um, so we will watch to see in the weeks ahead how this new rollout goes. And we all are hopeful that many, many more people are going to get vaccinated and that Governor Kemp is able to fulfill another commitment he made, which is by uh, April, he expects to be able to open the vaccine pool to all adult Georgians and have doses for them. So we're going to watch that. But Andrew, one last question about this before we move on. Um, you're a researcher, and you understand the value of, of really doing drilling down and doing deep research. And I get the fact, and, and I think that, that a, a good point was made, Chuck made that point, and, and Scott did too, that you know, we're learning about this process. We're having to create systems, adapt systems to be able to deal with COVID-19. But we're, we have every reason to think that we are going to start living in ages of pandemics or potential pandemics in our future. And it strikes me that it's going to require a deep study of how the state, uh, the Department of Public Health, other state agencies, the governor, how they handled this pandemic from the very beginning, communication of information about it, uh, the, the racial disparities in dealing with it. Uh, it, it. It just strikes me that if that this is one of those things where a blue ribbon panel at some point is really going to be necessary so we can deal with the future. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. I think that the pandemic uh, revealed systemic inequalities that many of us knew were already there that require uh, addressing, as Representative Holcomb has mentioned. Um, and I also think that uh, people are going to have to be willing to be proven wrong by data, and that this has to happen not just at the state level, but it also has to happen at the federal level um, as well. So, you know, some of the things that people are doing in terms of making decisions is they'll say, well, California and Florida had similar rates of infection. You know, one had lockdowns, one didn't have lockdowns. What do we do about that? Right. Well, if we study this systematically, we'll be able to get a better sense of, you know, what impact lockdowns had versus what, you know, impact masks had and other types of things. I think the thing that's most troubling is when people are uh, sort of willfully ignoring sound data that exists. Uh, for political purposes or because it's convenient for them to be able to do so. And also when you see people kind of uh, pushing the football around or tossing it around as opposed to taking responsibility. And so especially for uh, my Republican friends, if the state doesn't take responsibility for having a robust program to address this, don't get upset when the federal government intervenes and starts telling you what to do. 
So um, I think we all have to be very mindful of that and be prepared for the next crisis to happen. And that's going to involve leadership at both the federal, state and local level. Um, Chuck, do you think there's going to be an appetite for, I mean, once we finally shut the door on this pandemic, doing the kind of, of, of research studying of how this all came together, not just, in fact, in looking at a, a future possible pandemic, but as as Andre points out, looking at health health disparities in the state in a, in a broader way. Well, that's a discussion that we were having before 2020 and before the pandemic became a, a top issue, ensuring accessibility and affordability in health care is a critical mandate for us as state leaders. And I think the uh, I think that the pandemic has really heightened uh, some some real questions as to uh, priorities and funding that we receive from the federal government and uh, how we can ensure that states who uh, best know how to spend dollars effectively and are able to identify the critical needs within their states, uh, how, how they should be trusted to, uh, to, to distribute those funds and to, and to determine those priorities. So I'm hopeful that we'll have that discussion. Certainly, uh, the risk of pandemics isn't going away. And when you broadly look at history, it's, it's uh, something that, that has, uh, has been dealt with. And so uh, we need to have a plan in place to ensure that if and when we face uh, similar challenges in the future, uh, we're able to, uh, to learn lessons that, uh, that, we've, uh, that we've had from over the past year and, and, uh, and continue to improve. Of course, Scott, what, one of the things that Democrats would suggest is that the number one priority ought to be, especially with all this money coming in, the $1.9 trillion Biden relief package is the expansion of Medicaid to cover all Georgians who qualify. 100%. I've been beating that drum for a long time. I think economically, it, it's just an absolute no-brainer. We would cover more people at less cost, and it would help support our rural hospitals. But I want to weigh in on just a couple of the other points that were made. Um, I do hope that we capture the lessons that were learned and that we don't immediately move on as soon as it's safe for us to live differently. We really need to take advantage of this moment to learn these lessons. And, and I think that the risk of this coming back is there and it's it's not a certainly novel statement or observation but prevention is always cheaper and that is true in the context of pandemics and it's also true in just keeping our health uh, the health of our people um, better off and and i do hope that we really peel back and take a harder look at what things we can do in terms of drivers to improve health. And interestingly, most of that is in the social situation. It's in access to good education, it's in access to good jobs, and it's in overall performance of our society. So we need to keep working on those issues. All right, let's move on from that uh, for, for, for now. Uh, as I said, tomorrow on the show, we're going to devote the whole hour to looking back at the year of the pandemic and where we're heading with the, uh, some of the real experts in public health on, on this issue. Um, and, and let's move on uh, to uh, uh, the legislature and bills that uh, are uh, still in the mix down there. Now, we do want to talk about where the election bills stand, and we'll do that in a little while but I, I think as long as we have Chuck Efstration and Scott Holcomb with us, so, some of you out there have said, gee, all this talk about the election bills, there's other things happening at the Capitol. Yes, there are. And Efstration and Holcomb are both working on bills that um, are, are worthy of a conversation. 
on this show today. Scott, let's start with you, because for a number of years now, you have been a champion of giving women uh, the uh, outcomes they deserve after being victims of uh, rape. You've, you have, been, uh, you have uh, successfully passed through the legislature numbers of bills that deal with rape kits, how quickly they're processed, and the like. And talk about that, but talk about it in the context of the bill you have this session. Thank you, Bill. Um, since 2016, the state has made great progress in a bipartisan way to address how we respond as a state to sexual assault. In 2016, we worked to address the backlog, which was um, a very unfortunate situation where um, rape kits just sat on shelves without being tested and nothing happened. They didn't move through the criminal justice system, and it was, it was really a travesty. So we worked to fix that. Um, we cleared the backlog in 2018, and then in 2019, we passed legislation to extend the time that we preserve the sexual assault kits, and that's important because DNA evidence lets us solve crimes for longer periods of time now. And, and now what we're doing is we're taking the next step, and the next step is to set up a website and a tracking system so that way victims of sexual assault can track the, the status of the evidence from time of evidence collection all the way through the courtroom. And I think it's a very um, survivor-focused piece of legislation, and it's, it's another step. And I've already started to lay the groundwork of what I want to do next, which is that I want to have a central repository for evidence across the state. There's great differences on how evidence is, is maintained and stored, so that's where I want to go next. But for, for this session, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can get this bill that passed uh, the House unanimously across the finish line in the Senate, and that would set up this tracking system. Scott, before we move on, let me ask you a personal question. Where did this come from in terms of your interest and concern about this? Why you? Mm. It's not an abstract issue for me. Um, people that I care about a lot have been um, impacted by it. Over the last half decade, I've spent a lot of time um, with survivors, and if you do, you can't help but be motivated to try to help fix the system. And then I'll share with you just a little anecdote when I started working on this. Um, I wasn't sure if I was the right person to do it, especially because of my gender. And one of my friends said to me, she said, men cause this problem, men have to help fix it, and you have to work to help fix it. And so that's a, a big part of why I've made this a focus. Uh, Andra, on the WebEx, which we used just to see each other, I saw you nod when uh, he said men cause this problem, men need to fix it. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there are valid concerns about descriptive representation, but sometimes that can be used as an excuse for people who aren't directly affected by certain issues to not weigh in or bear responsibility sometimes for the harm that they cause. And this is true not just on gender, but on all kinds of other identity dimensions. And so I, you know, think that it is, you know, I think the friend uh, was, you know, quite apt in saying this and that this is applicable in, in, in other areas, too, where everybody where this is everybody's problem and we all need to kind of bear each other's burdens. Um, Chuck Abstration, I want to give you a chance to talk about some legislation that's important uh, that you're taking legal in. But let's do this. We're running late for a break. We'll do that as soon as we come back from our first break on this edition of Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. 
If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Dr. Andre Gillespie, Jim Galloway, Representative Chuck F. Stration, and Representative Scott Hokum with us on Political Rewind uh, today. Uh, Chuck, uh, I said before the break that we, we knew you've been working on a couple bills that the public has got a, a good amount of interest in. You, of course, last year you championed hate crimes and uh, uh, were successful in uh, working in a bipartisan way to get that uh, established as law in Georgia, a citizen's arrest. Uh, reforms have meant a lot to you, and also ethics. Just give us an idea of the bills right now that are still in play that you're watching uh, to try to deal with particularly. Well, thank you. I, um, you know, in following up from passing the Historic Hate Crimes Act last year, a priority was ensuring that the state lead the country in repealing citizens' arrests following the killing of Maude Arbery. And the uh, state house sent a very strong message on crossover day, unanimously passing a repeal of the citizens arrest law, which I think was a culmination of bipartisan work put in over the past year uh, to uh, to craft the right legislation. I commend uh, Governor Kemp's administration for taking on that issue and being willing to bring it forward. I'm also carrying a campaign finance reform bill, which. Uh, sometimes kind of gets into the weeds. We all talk about the importance of ethics in government, but it can be difficult to pass these measures when uh, when it's time to actually get to the specifics. And the State Ethics Commission has worked in partnership with me and a bipartisan group of legislators to bring a bill that really implements common sense measures, uh, ensures that candidates can't use uh, campaign funds for personal benefits, that they're not uh, put in um, what are apparent, very clear conflict of interest circumstances and really in, improves transparency and increases public trust that elected officials are running or using their campaigns appropriately and uh, that there's not a source of per- personal benefit from the from the campaign funds raised. And so I'm proud of uh, this Ethics and Government Act that I'm carrying this year. It passed out of the State House and is scheduled for a hearing in the State Senate Ethics Committee today. And I'm very hopeful that it will ultimately pass and be signed into law by the governor this year. Jim, uh, in, in many ways, that legislation comes out of some pretty high-profile uh, news stories about uh, uh, legislators or, or elected officials, rather, who have uh, kept their campaign funds for personal use. Right, right. Uh, 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 there's John Oxendine, uh, the, the, the former uh, gubernatorial candidate and state insurance commissioner, uh, that's that's been an on, ongoing situation for several years, uh, kind of a legal bat battle, uh, and and I'm sure there are, there's an, there's another one out there, and I can't I can't call it to mind. Maybe maybe Chuck Chuck can help my memory here. Our former insurance commissioner. Well, the uh, I mean, I, I'll just I'll just say there there have been uh, there have been several cases that have arisen over the past, frankly, decades that have highlighted the needs for updates to our to our ethics laws in this area and this includes many cases and um and i think that uh that that's that's part of this bill and also what we're trying to do is have a forward-thinking approach 
where are there existing gaps in the ethics law that we can proactively address now so that there aren't similar arguments made in court in the future as the technical deficiencies in the law. And, and so I think this is an important discussion to have. I appreciate Representative Holcomb's co-sponsorship of the legislation with me, and, and, um, and I think that we're going to get some great things done with this bill this year. Okay, um, this is, again, because I've been hearing from people, including, by the way, my senior producer, Amelia Brock, who has said to me over and over, they're doing other things besides the election bills, We and I think the public needs to know about it. You are. Uh, but now it is time, Jim. We're going to talk about these election bills because they are significant in many, many ways, as we know we've talked about them on the show. And, Jim, the best way to start this part of the conversation, I think, is to... Listen to Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor of Georgia, talking to Chuck Todd yesterday on Meet the Press. Uh, he was asked about these bills, and here's just a little of what the lieutenant governor had to say. Well, we actually have over 80 uh, bills in the General Assembly this year that are election-related. 21 of them are actually written by Democrats. But uh, there's some good ideas that have been put in place by Democrats and Republicans we actually passed four bipartisan bills, election reform bills, two weeks ago in the Senate. Uh, but look, as you, as you mentioned a second ago, there's a lot of solutions in search of a problem. Uh, Republicans don't need election reform to win. We need leadership. I think there's millions of Republicans waking up around the country that are realizing that Donald Trump's divisive tone and strategy is, is unwinnable uh, in, in, in forward-looking elections. We need real leadership. We need new, new focus, a GOP 2.0 that includes moderates in the middle. Uh, to get us to the next election cycle. Uh, so, Jim, Jeff Duncan uh, was asked, Chuck Todd asked him yesterday about uh, the fact that he stepped away from his position as uh, uh, leading the uh, proceedings in the Senate when they were debating that omnibus bill, which included a measure that would end no-excuse absentee balloting. And he told Chuck Todd, yeah, I don't have a vote, so the best I could do was walk off to make it clear I'm not a part of that. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I, I was uh, actually quite surprised that he that that he showed up on my TV set on, on Sunday morning, uh, and 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 said those things. I mean, he has been kind of he is he's been uh, in this in in this uh, uh, thought process. I think since well, really since November third, but but he's he's part he's become part of this. Uh, uh, Republican 2.0 movement. Uh, it's it's not a majority of the Republican uh, Party at this point. It's 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 uh, the base is 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 pure, uh, clearly a Donald Trump base. But uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Duncan is trying to show uh, that there are some alternatives out there and i think his message that you know that we that, that republicans need to 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 look at 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 the at moderate republicans and not chase them out of the party is i, I think is very important hey andre chuck todd also asked him uh, about sunday voting and whether he saw that that was an effort to uh to undermine uh, african-american voters and he said yeah i'm very sensitive uh to that that's a mistake uh, uh a strong statement from a Republican leader. Um, it's a strong statement. I mean, I completely agree with him um, when he says that. And I think Jeff Duncan is playing a long game. It might be a very, very long game just looking at the way the party is going. But I think he is betting on just the sense of uh, just kind of uh, morality and kind of like, you know, on principle, this is the right thing to do to not continue in really excessive divisive politics. And to the point about Sunday voting, 
Um, you know, and I do think in the interview he mentioned that there were a lot of proposals that were solutions in search of problems, right? We know that there wasn't widespread voter fraud to speak of that merited this comprehensive overview of everything and overhaul of the election system. Not that election systems don't need to be tweaked, not that you don't learn things from each and every election, um, and not that we shouldn't be vigilant in, in addressing fraud. It's just that there wasn't the kind of fraud to speak of that Donald Trump was claiming was there. And in particular, when you're going after certain types of strategies, one that we have documented uh, African-Americans are more likely to use, the problem isn't with the system, right? So if Republicans are mad that black churches, you know, rent buses and take all of their parishioners like to go vote on a Sunday before an election, then the way you fight that is not to get rid of Sunday voting. There's nothing stopping any other group, any other racial group, any other religious group from doing the exact same thing. And so I think the strategy there is, is if you can't beat them, join them and see what happens when you're actually opening up on the playing field. And what I haven't heard Republicans say enough is Donald Trump's strategy was wrong. And like we paid dearly for it uh, in terms of the, the White House and control of the Senate. It's not necessarily that the mechanisms were wrong by which this happened. It's just that he came up with a crazy strategy to try to force everybody to vote on Election Day. And he couldn't make up for all of the vote banking that Democrats had done. And if people were just honest and said that and we could move on, we wouldn't have these bills that, you know, are in fact racially motivated, kind of, you know, winding their way through legislators, legislatures across the country. So, Chuck, um, the bills like no Sunday voting or uh, eliminating Sunday voting, shortening the number of early voting dates, uh, getting uh, reducing drop boxes to a bare minimum in, in, very, in a big way, eliminating no excuse absentee balloting. These are all kind of the measures that many people have tab, tagged as extreme. And there are people who are now saying, well, don't worry, we're going to compromise. The House and Senate will work together. And a lot of the more extreme measures are going to end up out of this bill. But that's how we ended up getting a bill that all but outlaws abortion in Georgia when many voices, including Republican voices, said, oh, don't worry, we'll fix this. What's going on? Are these extreme measures, like, and, and I call them extreme because so many people think they are, going to end up being law? What, what I think's important to remember here is that it's my belief that the debate that's happening about election reform at the Capitol right now is not about the most recent election. It's about all elections. And as we heard Lieutenant Governor say, there are bills authored by both Democrats and Republicans that have been introduced at the state Capitol this year. I mean, this is an issue which has been raised by, by folks from both parties. When you have a Democrat questioning the outcome of the 2018 gubernatorial election, and a Republican questioning the outcome of the 2020 election and uh, voters then questioning uh, the veracity of the of the ballots cast and counted. I think that that's an important issue for legislators to consider and take up whether your candidate wins or loses. It's important to respect the outcome of the election. And I think it's also important to note that many of the issues that are being uh, discussed and debated right now are really related to COVID-19. Prior to um, prior to the circumstances around COVID, issues like drop boxes and other things, just where the law is silent, had not been debated or discussed previously. And 
uh, we are in uh, we are in a uh, uh, time here after the pandemic or you know with the pandemic where we're dealing with issues that uh, that maybe hadn't been contemplated or hadn't been uh, where the law was silent. And so uh, so with all of that considered, I think it's important that we give Georgians uh, confidence that the uh, that their ballots cast are secured and that the vote result is accurate and that uh, you can't cheat in Georgia. And uh, when voters have that confidence, then we all win. I mean, with all due respect to Representative Estration, one, I wouldn't compare Stacey Abrams' non-concession in 2018 to what President Trump did. Um, I mean, it's just, it, it, they're, they're not quite the same. And when we think about the issues that Abrams was concerned about, so things that, you know, put up barriers to voter registration, um, you know, people looking at signature matches that were being – where blacks were being disproportionately having their, their ballots uh, actually deemed invalid, that's different than – I lost by 12,000 votes, and so therefore I'm going to make up some stuff about voter fraud that that wasn't there. Um, and then there was the uh, Stacey Abrams didn't like try to move into the uh, to the governor's mansion, you know, in 2019. Um, whereas there's a riot that you know we all know is directly related to to, to this lie of, uh, about election fraud. And then I mean, if we also think about sort of like what the concessions look like, the things that Abrams was concerned about. In particular, that there were lines that were too long in black communities and in poor communities uh, where uh, people may have been discouraged and got out of line. The truth was the reason why she dropped her lawsuit, if we're going to be honest about it, was she couldn't find 55,000 people who could legitimately claim that that happened where it could be proved. Um, and so while there will be suspicions about that for years to come for some people, there comes a point where if you don't have the evidence to back it up, you kind of have to drop it. And so, yeah, I know that there are lots of Democrats in the state who think that Stacey Abrams should be governor of Georgia, but they don't have the proof to substantiate that. Meanwhile, we look at public opinion polling in this state, you still have a majority of Republicans who still somehow think that Donald Trump won the presidential election because they're being fed a steady diet of lies from the president and his surrogates saying stuff that is just not backed up by data. Chuck, I know you want to respond, and then I really want to get you in here, Scott. When, uh, you know, our form of a government is we fight it out before the election. We make our arguments. We really uh, debate the issues. And then ultimately, the winner at the ballot box is respected. And that's why our system works. And it made the winning candidate might not have been the one that you supported, but nevertheless, you respect the system and the office. And the issue is ensuring that there is confidence in our election results is a bipartisan issue. And it's something that uh, frankly, we've we've lacked from the Democrat perspective in 2018 and then from with some Republicans in 2020, uh, not from me, but from some Republicans. And and based upon that, there's a collective interest in ensuring that there's confidence and trust that our election results are to be believed and respected and that we can all then support the president, support the governor, even if it wasn't the candidate that that uh, that you specifically voted for. Scott, jump in. Thanks. Um, I, I think what's what's most challenging in, in working through this is just that the the purported reasons for the election reforms, uh, most of the ones that are viewed as being extreme, 
are based on either flat out lies or just misinformation or inaccuracies. And that's sort of troubling from a policy standpoint that we're working to redress issues that don't actually exist. So um, I, I will say without, you know, relitigating all these things, uh, I view it a little bit differently to 18 to 20 because Thankfully, Georgia changed its system. You'll recall that Georgia had uh, a, a machine system that didn't have any paper component whatsoever, and there was no ability to do audits or to have um, any type of recounts or tabulations. And thankfully, we at least fixed that. I, I wasn't a big fan of the system that we um, imposed. I favored um, Handmarked paper ballots, which were the view of the experts, but we did have the ability in 2020 to go and, and match up signature or um, ballots to uh, all the records. So I, I think what what I sort of wrestle with is just the issues that we're spending a lot of time on just are are false. And so if it's just trying to set up the system to give one party an advantage, then that's problematic. And, and I do agree with uh, my friend and colleague, um, Chairman of Stration, that we need to have a system that's secure. I think everybody wants that, but at the same token, we also need to have a system that promotes accessibility. And changes to accessibility should not be based on falsehoods. They should be based on, um, on reason, and, uh, and we should make those changes very, very carefully uh, and, and Ultimately, I don't know what's going to happen so to get to the end of your question, Bill. I don't know what's going to happen in terms of what's going to pass, but I do think some things that we would view as extreme are going to make it across the finish line. I, I'm uh, really late for a break, but Jim, go ahead and make your final point, and then we'll come uh, back. With yeah, them. yeah. Uh, let me just let me set the table for when we come back here. Uh, if if I can ask Chuck and and, and Scott and, and Andrea, uh, is is Republican leadership in the state capitol in control of this election law movement? Can they, can, can they custom make what comes out of a conference committee and goes to the governor uh, for a signature? Or are, are, they, are they bound by the Republican basis demanding so much more? That is the, that's the question. Uh, is this out of control or not? We'll talk about that uh, when we come back. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back from our final break. One quick note before we get back to today's discussion. I uh, got a lot of great response to my conversation on Friday with Tony Award-winning director Kenny Leon, who, of course, makes his home here in Atlanta. He had a lot to say about theater, about African-American participation in theater, about the great Mahalia Jackson, whose uh, uh, life he is telling in a Lifetime movie, which is coming up. Uh, soon, and many other subjects. If you missed it, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast, or you can go to gpb.org slash PR and find it online there. I think a lot of people had said to me they'd love to know where they can hear it. All right. Um, we're really short on time, but 
Jim Galloway asks the key question, and I want to give each of you just a little time here. Um, Chuck, the question is, who's in control of this bill right now? Is it the base of Republicans who believe there was fraud in the election and therefore are going to push hard for their representatives, their senators, to stick to these measures? Or do the leaders have a way to uh, try to turn these bills, to make these bills uh, less extreme, less dramatic? Chuck, Scott, and then Andra. The governor, lieutenant governor, and speaker have all said that they do not favor an end to no excuse absentee voting. Any proponent of an elections measure here at the Capitol knows that ultimately, even if it passes, it's up to the governor's signature. And if there are provisions that the governor does not object to, is on record objecting to, then the likelihood of success would be very low. So I think with the, uh, with the evidence that we have right now, uh, it seems very unlikely that something like that would happen. Scott, Jim's point is that the base may push uh, Republicans to go the whole way on all these bills. I think there's a lot of pressure there, and that's why what I said right before the break, I think some of these things are going to pass because they're going to have to feed the base. You, you know, I think when we were talking about Representative Holcomb's efforts and advocacy on behalf of sexual assault survivors is actually appropriate here, right? So he's doing this as a man because he recognizes that men are part of the problem here. And one of the issues here is that it's a lie keeps on getting perpetuated and people don't have confidence in the system because they're too busy being told something that is not true. Somebody's got to step up and take leadership. And it's not Democrats, because Democrats aren't the ones doing the lie this time. If they were, I would say so. But in this case, it is Republicans who are doing it. They're going to have to take leadership. And what I see is a lot of sort of Berkey and discussion of trustee versus delegate leadership. And I see a lot of people behaving as delegates, though they know better. And it's time for them to step up and be trustees and, and do what they what is right and based on what they know, which is that there wasn't widespread fraud in this election and that some of these proposals are just not necessary. Jim, I think your question, uh, you, you echoed something uh, that, that I was uh, basically uh, saying, which is that the, sometimes these measures do run a, a, away from leaders, no matter what they try. And Jim, the abortion uh, law really is the perfect example of that. There were very few leaders who really wanted to outlaw abortion in Georgia, but the constituency demanded it and it got out of, out of hand. No, no. In, in fact, if you recall, this this was uh, three years ago now. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp issued a, 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 a put up a, a bill that would have uh, banned abortion when the Supreme Court bans it. And yes. it was deemed uh, too lukewarm. And and so he lost control of that issue. Um, I this is one of those days we need two hours. We don't get two hours. Uh, and I wish we had it because there's so much more I'd like to talk with this panel about uh, Dr. Andre Gillespie. You know we always love having you on. Thank you for being with us. Scott Holcomb, Chuck F. Stration, uh, you too. You are two of the members of the legislature who really come on this show and uh, do what we hope to do on every show, which is to talk respectfully and uh, with a lot of smarts about the things that are happening in Georgia. Thank you both for being here. Jim Galloway, my partner on Mondays. Have a great week, Jim. Enjoy life in sort of retirement. That's it for us today. Again, tomorrow we'll talk about a year in the life of COVID on this show and a lot more. Uh, Until then, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and now, if you haven't been vaccinated, start looking for how you can get that shot in the arm. See all of you tomorrow.